You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Sarah Kadar, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. So today we are sitting, though online, with Paul Lapalalane, a Swedish and American lawyer, to discuss racial discrimination in Sweden. How is the country dealing with the issue from a legal perspective mostly? And what are the current challenges faced by both the Swedish states and the civil society? So Paul has been working for many years now on discrimination and equality issues, both at the national and the European level. Indeed, he's also a member of the European Equality Law Network, as well as a PhD candidate for the law faculty of Stockholm University. And Paul is currently working on a PhD thesis on an international comparative analysis of the development of equality law. So welcome to the On Human Rights podcast, Paul. Thank you for being with us today. We're looking forward to this conversation. We will soon... Um, look at the situation in Sweden in particular when it comes to racial discrimination. But before that, and to sort of settle the frame of this conversation, could you come back on the difference between racial discrimination and racism? Racism, it's has to do with any attitude or actions that are conscious or subconscious, that, that subordinate a certain group uh, based on skin color or their so-called race. It's both at an individual level, but also at an institutional level. And the difference compared to race discrimination, discrimination, discrimination is an action. It's a, the exercise of power. Okay. Which separates it from racism. Racism can just be in your mind. Uh, discrimination is actually the exercise of power where people are diff treated differently due to their so-called race. And then that has to do with giving or, giving or withholding benefits, jobs, housing, education, things like that. So we have on the one hand, uh, more like a concept or thoughts with racism and on the other hand, actions with discrimination as such. Yeah. Okay. There is also an idea, if you can change people's behavior, that will affect their thoughts. Um, instead of sometimes we have the idea, if we change people's attitudes, that will result in, in better behavior. We, we lo lose the idea that it's a question of power and we focus on the idea that, well, if people have better attitudes, then they'll be behave better. And better attitudes don't always tra transform into better behavior. Yeah, it, it is true. And talking about Sweden, because that's the thing, when we think about racial discrimination or institutional racism, as you just defined them, Sweden is not necessarily among the countries that we would mention spontaneously, quite the opposite, in fact, at the international level or the European one. We often refer to the United States and the police violence there against Afro-Americans, also due to the dramatic events that occurred and are occurring still as the killing of George Floyd on May 25th in 2020. But still the problem does exist in Europe and in Sweden also. And in fact, the Black Lives Matter had a resonance here in Europe. 
but still we don't really uh, recognize it the same way. We don't really address the problem um, as one of the main issues that we need to deal with. And do you think that in Sweden it's because it's a recent phenomenon or only because it has recently became part of a public and more open debate? It's, it's a latter. It's because it's recently become part of the debate. Hmm. And sometimes for the wrong reasons, but, but still it's become part of the debate, sort of. That goes up and down. Since the 90s, there's been some discussion about racism in Sweden. But there's still an underlying tendency in Sweden to think that, well, we're still better than those people. Hmm. There's an idea that we have never been racist. We don't have a history of racism. And that means people are talking as if Sweden is, part, is not part of Europe and Europe is not part of the West. We're hiding in a little corner and we're good people and racism is totally somewhere else instead of, well, racism is part of Swedish history. If you look, if you look at how we've treated the Roma, if we treat, how we treated Jews, how we treated Finns, how we treated the Sami, it's not as if that history is part of recent history. There's been a little more recognition, say again, in recent years. But for a long time after World War II, it was always easier to say, well, the problem is over there. It's in the US. It's in South Africa. If, if you look at after World War II, Sweden did take in a certain amount of refugees, but Sweden also needed a lot of workers. We got in workers from Finland and Italy and Yugoslavia and Spain and Portugal, uh, because we simply because we needed workers. But then by the early 19, about 1968, 69, 70, the unions decided we were getting too many foreigners. So together with the government, they decided, okay, we're going to cut off the labor immigration. And then they were thinking, where are we going to get the new workers? So you, you have a push towards gender equality. To some extent, <laughs> that was based on, we don't want those people, so we want women in the work in working life. And there are many examples. If you look at World War II, why, why were we so concerned after World War II about presenting a good image to the rest of the world? Well, part of the reason was without, without materials from Sweden, Germany could never have had the war machine it had, mm. especially without our iron. It's, it's, not, it's not that difficult. And, and then about 1942, 43, uh, Sweden decides, well, this is not such a good idea. The Allies are going to win the war. And we switch. And then during the 1950s and 60s, we built up a great reputation about being for underdeveloped countries, very strong in regards to Vietnam, helping Chile after the coup there. All right. I mean, all these are good things. Fighting apartheid in South Africa, all that's great. But that also builds into the population an idea that, well, we don't have those problems. Those problems are somewhere else. And they're yeah. caused by someone else. Well, whereas, in fact, it <laughs> but, doesn't mean that racial discrimination and racism don't exist. It doesn't mean racism isn't Sweden. here and racial discrimination hmm. isn't here. It's more a question of where is it hiding and what are we actually doing to deal with it? For the most part, we, we try to avoid dealing with it. And that is actually the point that I, I wanted to come to, is that actually you've been working on racial discrimination issues since a number of years now. And talking about the place and where discrimination occur, 
today? Which developments have you witnessed over the years in that regard? Well, when you when you ask in which areas does race, race discrimination occur, I would counter with a different question: mm -hmm. Where does it not occur? <laughs> if if racism is, is a problem, and if it's a problem among say the elites who have power in Sweden, then there there are very few areas where it's not going to be an issue. And you can see it in working life. You can see it in uh, education. You can see it in the legal system. You can see it in the political system. And it also fits into the idea of denial. In, when we get near, near those issues, then all of a sudden we have to talk about how are we going to help those people? How are we going to control those people? How are we going to educate those people? And, and it's very seldom a focus on, well, if there's, assuming there's discrimination is a problem, then those people are not the problem. The people who control discrimination are those with the power to discriminate. And then you have to decide, okay, what do we do about employers? What do we do about unions? What do we do about merchants? What do we do about landlords? What do we do about government civil servants? And, and, and it becomes very uncomfortable for policymakers to say, okay, we have to do something about the unions and the employers. They're a problem. They're the ones who are maintaining the system. Hmm. And especially in Sweden, it's, it's like swearing in church to say that the social partners are a problem or are the problem. And in regards to discrimination, they are the problem. They're the ones who for many years prevented any legislation concerning race or ethnicity in working life. Working life is a primary issue all the time. And so uh, talking about the legislation can... that you just mentioned, do you think that in countering racial discrimination law and legislations in general are an effective tool? And if yes, how can they be used? in a manner that could make them efficient? For, for me as a lawyer, there, there's a problem in that people think when I talk about using the law, they think that's the only solution. The law is not the only solution, but it is an important solution for civil society if it wants to deal with these issues. One, one practical reason is that civil society is on, in, in regards to these issues is often termed as, well, civil society is weak. Immigrants don't vote enough and, and nobody cares what they say. And to some extent, that's partly true, but that's true as long as they're not unified in, in regards to what they want. If they have a focus on, well, we want the law changed or we want a new equality ombudsman or, or we want some policy, then they get some, somebody's gonna listen to them. And especially if there's a fear that they're gonna vote on those issues. But that's not the situation we have. But in any case, we, we do have a, a law that's quite good on paper, fairly advanced compared to the rest of Europe. But the problem is, how do you turn law into reality? We have the words there, but turning it into, into reality is tougher. Again, because even the law, the law has to be directed towards those with the power to discriminate. They don't like that. The system is set up to protect them. If I sue somebody for, say, ethnic discrimination, then I'm putting my, whatever economy I have, I'm putting that at risk. It can cost a hundred thousand. If, if, if I'm doing it alone mm -hmm. and I want a lawyer, 
my lawyer is going to cost maybe 100,000 crowns. The lawyer for the other party is going to cost 100,000 crowns. That means 200,000. If I lose, I'll be ordered to pay my lawyer and the other and party's the other lawyer. Part. But the interesting thing about in regards to those with the power to discriminate, if I'm suing an employer or a merchant, what's going to happen then? For that merchant, the legal costs, whether they win or lose, are tax deductible. They're a cost of doing business. So we but need to me, increase these costs then. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to somehow increase the cost so they realize there's a bigger risk because they know that, that I'm taking great risks. So they can probably count on me not taking a case, even if I have a very good case. And then you get into the issue of, well, do the unions take the cases? Maybe, maybe not. Nobody really knows. And quite often, the unions haven't been that forceful in bringing up the issue of discrimination. Why? Because that, sort, that could disturb their relations with the employer. So, so that it's very difficult issue. The Equality Ombudsman in the past 10 years has, went from, has gone from maybe taking 30 or 35 cases to court or taking up legal procedures, about 30 or 35. Uh, last year was a handful, three, four. And the past couple of years, that's been. But the, the Equality Ombudsman has been shifting to a new strategy. So, so there are problems in how the law is implemented. My idea is that civil society must become much more mobilized. Hmm. Civil society has to decide what kind of laws it wants. It doesn't like the laws on the books. They have to decide and go to politicians and say, these are the laws we want. And once the laws are in place, they have to be part of enforcing those laws, helping have, people yeah. take cases. To it because that's apparently, well, that's not what's happening with the equality on this month. And if you have a law that's not used, how worthwhile is it? It's yeah, something yeah. that's good for politicians in, in, at the EU. Look, we have a good law. We're at the UN. They can say, look, we have a very nice law. It's not used very much, but then they use, then they say that, well, since it's not used very much, that's maybe because we don't have a problem. But that's, that's where civil society comes in. A lot of people in, in civil society don't understand that the reason we have the laws, the relatively good laws that we have in place, it's not because politicians came up with a brilliant idea. It's because civil society in the U.S., where things were much more difficult, decided to take things into their own hands. Said we have to work with the law. We have to decide what laws we want. We have to decide that we're going to at least take some cases to court. Because once you take some cases to court, you can help those people with the power to discriminate to change their behavior. Yeah, and in fact, that's what happened. That's what happened with the, yeah. um, the starting line, the new starting line group, right? That uh, gathered organizations yeah. in Europe and yeah, had a proposition of directive yeah. in, within the European Union framework to counter racial discrimination yeah. at the European level. It is now one of the main legal instruments, right? In, Europe, in the European yeah. Union. And, and the, the race equality directive in turn led to uh, a framework employment directive concerning religion, disability, sexual orientation, and age. It also led to consolidation and expansion of sex, the sex discrimination directives at the EU level. So, so that the starting line group was a key to say pushing these laws forward, but also they built into the idea, into the directive, the idea that civil society 
at least should be given a possibility to, to take on these cases. That's, that's why we have a, a possibility in Sweden for civil society organizations also to take on cases in their own name. It's a way of, it's a way of helping say individuals to avoid the cost risks. But the problem is the civil society is not equipped yet. The Equality Ombudsman, if they, in the few cases they take on, they also take on the economic risks. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the unions. The unions take on the economic risks of losing. They have the money. Civil society is starting to look at these issues. There have been the LGBT, RFSL, has taken some important cases to court. The disability organizations have taken some cases to court. In regards to anti-racist organizations, there's still, what I would say, too great a belief in the idea that if you get to sit down with politicians and explain how sad your situation is, they might help you or they might care. And for me, that's, that's not very realistic when I point out that, well, civil society doesn't do that, or that's not the only solution, say, in the US or Canada, UK. Yeah, but you're talking about foreign ideas. And then I have to explain to them, those are only foreign ideas to weaker groups in Sweden. Employers and unions have no problem in going to politicians and telling them exactly what laws they want and fighting about it and negotiating about it. And also once those laws are adopted, they have no problem going to court to test those laws. Yeah, so it's like in Sweden, there is like a law, anti-discrimination law that we should as civil society uh, take on, let's say, and use and use the case law, of course, to implement it better yeah. afterwards, or to at least counter yeah. the non-implementation by the ones that have the power to discriminate. Yeah, that's sometimes why I talk about a healthy competition with the Equality Ombudsman mm. and the union. If, if there were civil society organizations that are willing to take on cases sometimes, that at least should be an embarrassment to the unions. It should be an embarrassment to the government agency that is supposed to be taking on these cases. It, it's too bad for an agency that the main goal is to promote equal rights and opportunities and combat the discrimination. One of the problems with, say, their, their main goal is, to, they say, to promote equality. But they've become so focused on the idea of equality promotion, they haven't really went to the bottom with what does equality promotion mean? For them in the past seven, eight years, it's become a, a, a focus on reports, a focus on different documents, and a focus on issuing opinions that are not legally binding. Yeah. So it, it's my way of saying it, that's a way of changing attitudes. And again, well, you're not using the law, you're just talking about it and expecting that will somehow change people's behavior. And my idea is, well, Equality promotion goes hand in hand with, say, the, the legal side. If you win cases, then you have something to promote. And if equality promotion is used to enlighten people about when they're being discriminated against and what they can do about it, and that where, where there are solutions, that in turn provides better cases for the Equality Ombudsman or others, or Anti-Discrimination Bureau of Civil Society to take the court. The problem is, it is a normal Swedish phenomenon that when we have a social problem, we sometimes think we can solve the problem through more education. And I have no problem with education, but 
education is not the only solution to this kind of problem. Sometimes it's a way of hiding the problem because that way you can say you're doing something without actually doing anything. Mm. Whereas it should and be one of the means implemented to counter yeah. racial discrimination, not the only one, but just as the law. So yeah. it's like you have to have um, many tools and use them in their own specific way to at yeah. the end have a system that is efficiently countering racial discrimination. So you can use the law and the case law. And then on the other hand, you can use yeah. promotion and education to raise awareness so that the case law actually uh, build itself after through civil society. You raise, you raise awareness, exactly. You raise awareness about the case law. You raise awareness about what the actual law actually says, not what a nice expert group of people mm. who don't, ever deal with these, say, down-to-earth issues. At, at least that's, that's, that's a problem with academics sometimes. You're not down in the nitty-gritty. And, and actually, I, I do. I used to work at the Equality Ombudsman, and I know it's difficult. There are lots of hard decisions. But one of the more educational parts of the job has disappeared. And that's, that means actually talking to people who are discriminated against. That's where you learn something by listening to people and not just telling them. And, and there are terrible stories that you have to listen to. And, and there are stories that you can't do anything about, but your job is to listen to them, to understand them and figure out what parts of their stories can you do something about. But that's, a, that's an entire learning process. It's not something that you can develop by reading the law in the book. No, of course. Law itself, words on paper, they don't mean anything until you get some real life into them. Yeah, it has to have a substance, a real one that is linked to, to reality. I agree with you. But so we still see more and more international uh, civil movements trying to drive change. But how do you think um, the Swedish civil society, like, what do you think about their engagement? It, depend, it depends who you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about civil society, the... the or if I'm talking about racialized groups, mm -hmm. as compared to civil society unions, and unions are civil society too, uh, Amnesty International, the Red Cross, but they're what I would call established players. But if you look at the actual people or targets of discrimination, it is a struggle as far as I can see. Compared to many countries, Sweden provides quite a, amount, a large amount of sub subsidies mm -hmm. to different kinds of organizations. Sometimes I wonder whether or not those subsidies have undermined solidarity among the people who should be maybe working together. Because the problem is, if, if you have interested parties who are in desperate situations, naturally subsidies for an organization, that, that is a survival strategy as well. And then the survival strategy in Sweden becomes, what is it that policy, policymakers are going to provide support to? <laughs> and then after a while, you eventually start delivering what policymakers want to hear. And, and policymakers don't necessarily do that on purpose. But from what I can see about the practical result is they have, a, they have been very successful in, in getting especially racialized groups to look at each other as competitors. 
And the same, you can see the same thing in regards to the other discrimination grounds, say anti-racist groups, the feminist groups, look at the LGBT organizations and the discipline. They're all competitive. They're all in a competitive mode. And this has had a, a, a large effect, I think, especially on racialized groups. Previously, they were mainly ethnic you know, Iraqis or Iranians or Somalis and Chileans. And there have been, there has been some movement. If you, if you mentioned George Floyd within the Afro-Swedish movement, there has been some, some movement towards, okay, how do we, how do we, at least we work together? But even there, there's been an atomization about, well, who are we going to work with? I think it's good for discriminated groups to have a place to talk to each other. But if they want to have influence, they're going to have to get outside their group. They're going to have to have allies. They're going to have to have friends. They're going to have to be able to bring pressure on policymakers. And, and, and the problem is when you get bought off fairly easily, once you start making a little noise, you get a little money, you start becoming less yeah. focused on, on changing things. It's, and it's not easy. It's, it's a very nice society. It's sort of comfortable. People survive. And that, that doesn't mean I want things to get worse, but things are getting worse. And, and, Somehow we have to create a, a move going forward so people don't get into a depressing idea that there's nothing that can be done. For me as an immigrant, and part of the way I look at it, immigrants don't move, whether they're here because they had to be, or economics, or love, or whatever. If they're here, they still want a better life for themselves and their children. And most immigrants know that, they're, that they will pay a price by moving to another country. They understand that usually, but they don't want that price to be paid by their children and their children's children. That's why it's important to put, say, non-discrimination or equality onto the agenda. That's what civil society needs to do. And again, getting back to my lawyer thing, I think laws are sometimes a good way to, it's not that the law is a solution, but laws are sometimes a tool for gathering around or for getting disparate groups to say, immigrants or racialized groups, one thing they don't want is to be discriminated against. They can gather around that kind of issue. And if they gather around that kind, that kind of issue, they can realize that they have some influence. And that means that way they empower themselves. It's not just somebody giving them power. It's yeah. how do you take power? Even if it's only in pieces, once you start on that path, you realize, well, this is a good path. How do we build on it? How do we move forward? How do we help Sweden? Because as far as I'm concerned, this is a key issue. And one of the reasons I work on these issues, not just in Sweden, but in, in Europe, is this, it's the issue of race or ethnicity or racial discrimination. That's the biggest issue to overcome that we have. There are, there are other problems. I mean, I think climate change is important. Yeah. But I also have an idea, we'll kill each other before the climate does. Mm. And that's why we have to, and, and the solution to climate change is us, all of us being part of the change in regards to climate. And it's not gonna happen if you, uh, if you miss these issues. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because yeah, one thing is to acknowledge the fact that as individuals, we have to, a role to play that we can be active, but it can be sometimes difficult to know exactly how, what can I do as one individual to participate and to counter racial discrimination. But maybe part of the solution is to not think as one individual and maybe gather 
groups of people so that he can have more influence and get to those in power to change the situation in Sweden and elsewhere also. Yeah, and, and the, I mean, as, over the years, as I've met different people, it's, it's one thing you say to individuals because everybody has their own individual survival strategy. And, and, and I know people get depressed, people get, feel like they're beaten down all the time. And, and then the only thing I can come up with is you have to get up. You just can't give up. You have to keep coming again and again and again. You have to be more stubborn than they are. That's not, much, that's not very encouraging. That, that is, say, an individual survival strategy. But on top of that, it can help working with others. And, and it's working with others that change comes about. If those who have the power to discriminate don't feel that there's any credible threat, are we going to rely on their goodness to change? Yeah, definitely. But not the way so to far, get anyway. To change, in, <laughs> it hasn't worked so far. No. And that's, that's the problem with, say, equality pro- promotion as a strategy. If only education efforts works or, or information about this is the right way to do things, we wouldn't have a law. The law is there to give, say, force to a certain idea, to be able to at least give a chance to somebody to say those with power are a problem. Because also, once you get people with power who realize they're part of the problem, they can also be an important part of the solution just because they have power. <laughs> But you have to figure out how do you move them. And that's say, that's been one of my problems with the Equality Ombudsman over the past years is they're not concerned or they don't understand that that's where the key issue is. Who is the problem and how do you get them to change their behavior? So we need to shift the the way of thinking from thinking about how we can help people that are discriminated from thinking of how can we prevent discrimination to happen in the first place. And so who are the people discriminating? that we should actually talk to. But the hard thing then is that it still puts pressure on the people who are discriminated against to be part of bringing pressure on those with the power to discriminate. So, so it's still, it's not as if it doesn't require something. It does, but, but it's, uh, it's not easy. The main missing, uh, <laughs> let's say, part is to get people uh, discriminated or wanting to engage in the in this countering or elimination of racial discrimination, gaining somehow the power to put a pressure on those in power already. Sometimes when I talk to certain groups, I, I were depressed about, well, we're such a small group. Well, we can't do anything. And I, that reminds me of a, a, a quote by Margaret Mead. And she, she's, what she says is, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. All these movements, they started with a handful of people. It wasn't, they never had the majority, ever, whichever group you're talking about. But it was, say, committed people who were thoughtful, who tried to think about how do we move forward? I usually try to say, you have to combine, say, mobilization together with research researchers who can be part of the help with the solution and define the problem but not just researchers are too good at defining the problem and very seldom defining the solution 
that's where you get the change. That's where you can find it in the civil rights movement, anti-slavery movement, LGBT movement, women's movement. Those kinds of factors are there. You get movement when you, when you pull them together. Yeah, that is true. So let's hope that it will go in that direction. I've been hoping a long time <laughs> and I'll continue to hope. Yeah, as you said, you can't just give up. So. I, I do believe people are good, but you have to help them with their goodness. No, I mean, I get, I get worn out by the idea that in Sweden, ever since I moved here, I kept hearing that, well, the key to integration is, is a job. And, and what are people saying when they say that? Whether it's the left or the right, they've always been saying that. Meaning we don't really care about that individual. We just want him to not bother us or her. And, and that's the same thing with education or no, learning language. Well, key, key to language, key to integration is the language, which is not true since I know a lot of people who know Swedish. They just don't have the right skin color. Hmm. <laughs> no, so language, well, language is not quite it. And that's why I sometimes refer to my, refer to Canada. I met in high upset. No, the, the ambassador from Canada. She was talking about integration one time. And, and then she talked about, well, what do they do in regards to introducing immigrants into the country or whatever, and talked nice things about Sweden. And I said, how come you didn't mention the idea of equal rights and opportunities in, in Canada? I said, yeah, but I just assumed Swedes think about that, because that is the key to integration, people believing in their future. People believing that if I get an education, I get the language, the policymakers, the politicians, they're going to support me in getting equal treatment, not better treatment, but getting a fair chance. You know, it's, it's not that difficult. But that reminds me of another quote. Maybe we could end on. It's, it's by Sven Lindqvist from his book on Exterminate All the Brutes. And he says, you already know enough. So do I. It's not knowledge we lack. What is missing is the courage to understand what we know and to draw a conclusion. It's a good message both to say racialized groups or people that are discriminated against, but it's also important, an important message to policymakers or people with power to think about, well, can they really see themselves as not being part of the problem? It doesn't mean all knowledge comes necessarily from Sweden. But that also gets into what you started off with is, is the idea that we're special. You know, this knowledge about race discrimination has been developing all over the world. One of the reasons that we've borrowed every single tool we have, all of those tools have originally come from the US or Canada, mm. and they have to do with the struggles. Not, it doesn't have to do with nice policymakers in the US. It has to do with the struggles when the spark was civil society. It wasn't well-meaning politicians. I think it's a very nice way to conclude this conversation. So thank you very much. Uh, it has been a real pleasure to discuss with you. It's been a great pleasure for me too. This has been On Human Rights. For more information on the latest updates on Raoul Warrenberg's Institute work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.